Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, our topic is the Scramble for Africa, a very dark period in African history. We're going to be talking about, in the second half of the 19th century, how there was an explosion of intense competition between the great powers of Europe to grab as much African territory as possible. Kind of, where did they settle? What were they looking for? And why were they doing this? So that's our topic today on Bite Size History, the scramble for Africa. Let's start with where were they going? What, where was this territory that all of these European powers were grabbing? So to kick things off, the major players in the scramble for Africa were Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, like Great Britain. They, it's just absolutely crazy when you look at a map of Africa, say, in the year 1900, and I very much encourage you to kind of Google that, and you can see the entire continent uh, split up between these powers. Uh, Belgium had a colony in the Congo Free State and Belgian Congo, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And they had a reputation as maybe some of the most ruthless colonizers. They were extracting vast amounts of resources from the Congo, especially rubber. And contrary to a lot of these other European colonies, the uh, colony that the Belgians had in the Congo, which is in Central Africa, like if you look at a map of Africa, you'll see this green equatorial belt that extends across the continent. And the right there in the middle was the Congo. It was actually the personal property of the Belgian king, uh, rather than kind of in the pockets of private trade companies or owned by the government or anything like that. So that's, that's our first thing, is Belgium and the Congo. The next country that had a huge influence uh, during this time period was France. Now, France had uh, colonies and influence in North Africa, and for the purposes of this episode, I just want to tell the listeners, when historians talk about Africa or African history, you'll often hear North Africa versus what's called Sub-Saharan Africa, and they create that distinction for a number of reasons. North Africa is that strip across the top, um, mostly desert terrain and stuff like that, Uh, It borders the Mediterranean. Now, this was an area that had been known to the Europeans uh, since antiquity. You know, like the ancient Greeks knew about Egypt and and stuff like that. Uh, The Romans warred with people in North Africa, mostly out of Tunisia, called uh, the Carthaginians, like Carthage. So this had been known uh, to the Europeans for a long time. Uh, France, in the time of the scramble for Africa, had colonies in Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Now, when you go below the Sahara Desert, away from North Africa, you enter what's called Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's called that because Sub, like it's below, it's below the Sahara Desert. Now, in the old days, a lot of people called it Black Africa. 
And the reason why is because the peoples of North Africa were mostly Arabs and desert people. But then, like, when you went below the Sahara, that's when you really started encountering, like, like black Africans. So sometimes you'll hear, like, from the 19th century primary sources saying, you know, into the heart of blackest Africa or black Africans or something like that. There's also a connotation when they use that term of the unknown. So, you know, into the heart of blackest Africa, like something like the Congo, they call it that because it's black, like it's it's dark, it's unknown to us. But in any case, you get uh, south of Sahara Desert, you get French West Africa, which comprises the modern countries of Mauritania, Senegal, French Sudan, which is now Mali, uh, Guinea, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Niger, uh, Burkina Faso, Benin, then French Equatorial Africa, Gabon, Republic of the Congo, Central African Republic, Chad. Uh, in East Africa, you have French Somaliland, which is now Djibouti, uh, as well as Madagascar and Comoros, those islands off the coast of Southeast Africa. So France had a huge amount of territory during this period in Africa, rivaled only by the British. Um, as well, let's talk about Germany. Germany had colonies in Cameroon, uh, German East Africa, which is now Burundi, Rwanda, and Tanzania, German Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia, and German Togoland. Now, the reason why to this day you don't really hear too much about the German colonies in Africa is because they were very recently established. And after World War I, uh, which ended in 1918, and you had the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, Germany actually lost all these colonies. So that's one of the reasons, you know, when a lot of times when you talk to people about this period, that they're surprised. Oh, I didn't know Germany had colonies uh, in Africa, but they did. So again, you know, the period we're talking about now is like the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, stuff like that. Uh, Italy was also involved. They had a colony in Italian North Africa, which is now Libya and Eritrea and Italian Somaliland, which is now Somalia. So those are in East Africa in a region that's um, often called the Horn of Africa because it, it looks like a horn. Um, so like if you look at a map right where Somalia is, that's called the Horn of Africa. Portugal was also in on the game. You had Angola, Portuguese Cabinda, Portuguese East Africa, which is now Mozambique, Portuguese Guinea, which is now Guinea-Bissau, uh, the Cape Verde Islands, Sao Tome and Principe, well, those are some islands that had been colonized by explorers and stuff like that. Um, these countries, even to this day, like Portuguese is one of their official languages, especially in Angola and Mozambique. Spain was involved. Uh, they had little bits of land in the Western Sahara, as well as Spanish Morocco, uh, which is like right, right across from Gibraltar in North Africa. And then finally, you had the British. Um, now they had a huge amount of territory extending from Egypt uh, all the way through the continent to South Africa. And that was one of the major pushes of this time from British industrialists and investors and stuff like that. They wanted to build a railway line, quote, from Cairo to the Cape, which is from Egypt to Cape, like the Cape of Africa, Cape Town in South Africa. But in any case, at the peak of the scramble for Africa, uh, the British had Egypt, Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, which is now Sudan, British East Africa, which is now Kenya, uh, or as they would say, Kenya, uh, and Uganda, uh, British Somaliland, Southern and Northern Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia, Bechuanaland, which is now Botswana, 
and a bunch of stuff in South Africa. So like the Orange Free State, British South Africa. They also had the Gambia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, the British Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, and Nyasa Land, which is now Malawi. So, whew, okay, so that was a lot of countries. Um, one of the facts of this podcast, one of the facts of this episode that I want to relay to you is that at the peak of the scramble for Africa, so let's say like 1890, 1900, there were only two countries in the entire continent that were not under European control. And those were Liberia in West Africa. It's a, it's a strip of land on the coast of West Africa. Now, this had been founded by the United States American Colonization Society in 1847, so prior to the Civil War and the freeing of the slaves. And it was a lot of power, powerful white people that believed that blacks and whites in America could never really coexist uh, properly, like in an equal way, so that the best thing to do was to recolonize them back to Africa. And so they created this country, Liberia. And even to this day, you know, people in Liberia, they speak English, their flag looks like the American flag. Uh, the capital of their country is called Monrovia, named after President Monroe. And a lot of them have Anglo names like Taylor, Jones, Smith, stuff like that. It's because they're the descendants of um, like freed blacks in the 19th century in the United States who were sent back to Africa after an experience of slavery for, you know, who knows, decades, generations in the United States. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, that's Liberia in a nutshell, just quickly touching on that topic. But it's a very interesting story. Um, the only other independent state was uh, Ethiopia in East Africa, which was also called uh, Abyssinia. Now, like their borders shifted around a bit to kind of um, coexist with Italian Eritrea and French Somaliland. Um, now, there was, you know, later on in the 30s, prior to World War II, there was an Abyssinia crisis where they were invaded and briefly occupied by Italy. Um, but that's kind of beyond the time period we are talking about now. So yeah, briefly, that's just um, our first question is kind of who was involved and where did they go? And I hope that was helpful. Okay, let's tackle our next question, which is, uh, what were they looking for? Like, why were the Europeans um, so keenly interested on exploiting these resources. Well, the first fastest, simplest explanation is that Africa had a lot of resources that Europeans could not uh, make themselves or grow uh, themselves. So, and it became just kind of easier to just take these places and secure the supply lines, secure the sources of what they were looking for. Now, like in previous centuries, beginning with Portuguese exploration in the 1400s, the 1500s, Europeans had been trading with sub-Saharan Africans. So we're talking about black Africans here. They had like kingdoms in West Africa and stuff. Typically they would trade European technology, manufactured goods, uh, gold, silver, stuff like that. Uh, they would trade it for slaves, uh, ivory, um, gold, salt, uh, things like that. Uh, now, going into, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of the things they wanted from Africa, especially Central Africa, one of them was rubber. Now, rubber was huge. And this was before the discovery of synthetic rubber. 
which is a kind of rubber that you can make from petroleum, like oil. Um, I believe that was only, you know, a big thing kind of in World War II. Uh, up until this point, rubber comes from trees, uh, and specifically trees that grow in tropical climates. So it's it would later be a huge resource for like Indonesia and Malaysia and stuff like that. But uh, now that you have the Industrial Revolution is in full swing, uh, and within a few decades, you would have the development of things like automobiles and airplanes, uh, which need rubber. Africa was a huge source of this rubber that they wanted. The second thing I'd like to talk about is cotton. Now, let's say it's 1890. The American Civil War happened from 1861 to 1865. The southern states uh, in the United States during this period using slave labor, when the Civil War started, they were producing the vast majority of the world's supply of cotton, and the American Civil War very much dis, uh, disrupted this supply, forcing European countries to look for cotton elsewhere. One of the places the British found that they could cultivate it was India, um, but another place was Egypt. And even to this day, Egypt is kind of famous for its cotton. You know, when you hear people talk about bedsheets or, or pillowcases or whatever, sometimes they'll boast that, oh, this is Egyptian cotton, is because even to this day, it's considered, you know, some of the, the finest quality. So cotton was huge because during this time period, uh, these countries, these European countries, had huge manufacturing sectors based on textiles, like making clothing. Um, it was kind of part of their transition to, you know, modern fashion, modern clothing. So they were looking for these supplies of cotton, especially Britain and France. So that's kind of the second uh, resource that I'd like to talk about. Um, another thing that Africa had, especially East Africa, was coffee. Coffee is something that had become very popular in Europe uh, by this time. You know, a lot of these European countries, in fact, they even had what's called coffee cultures, where you know, intellectuals would gather and get all buzzed on coffee and discuss ideas and stuff like that. But in East Africa, you could actually grow this. I mean, Europe, like you can't grow coffee in, in Europe. Uh, the climate's just not suitable for it. Um, slaves were not a thing. So <clears throat> I, I guess maybe it's easy to confuse kind of the time periods. Like you might see pictures of these, you know, British explorers during the scramble for Africa. Uh, but uh, the point I wanted to make was during the time period of the scramble for Africa, so the 1870s, 80s, 90s, maybe 1900s, stuff like that, all of these European countries had already abolished uh, slavery. Like it had been abolished for a very long time. In fact, places like Britain and France uh, abolished slavery decades before the United States fought the Civil War um, and freed the slaves and stuff like that. One of the very last countries in the world to officially abolish slavery was Brazil, and that was in the you know 1880s, so in the time period that we're talking. But I just wanted to make that point that you know just to clear things up that the scramble for Africa, the time period that we're talking about now, like slavery was was not a part of that. Um, you know there was small maybe smaller scale trading for things like uh, copper, tin. Uh, these are metals that are very important, especially in the industrial uh, kind of revolution. Copper and tin, you mix them together, you get bronze. Copper and zinc, you mix them together, you get brass. And these were very important for machinery, especially um, like fittings for machines that were resistant to corrosion. So obviously, if you're a big industrial power like Britain, France, Germany, uh, you, want to, you want to secure uh, kind of sources of these metals. 
And that's pretty much all of the resources. I mean, Africa just had so much of everything. Uh, you know, there was also oil. Uh, like in the late 19th century, you, you just have the very beginning of oil becoming a very important source of fuel. Like just a few decades earlier, like in places in the United States, like they were still using whale oil. Um, but around this time, uh, petroleum's becoming a, a big thing. Uh, diamonds, it, it, you know, towards the tail end of the scramble for Africa uh, with people like De Beers and stuff, uh, they found huge amounts of diamonds in South Africa. So yes, like that was also part of it. Um, but yeah, so those were kind of the main uh, resources uh, of kind of the, the the treasures of Africa that kind of drew these these European people in. Let's talk about why the Europeans um, were doing this, like kind of why were they, and, and we're talking about now not about resources and economics. Uh, but kind of why was there such a push by these European governments to grab territory in Africa during this time period? The first one is politics, geopolitics, uh, international rivalries. So by the 1870s, 80s, 90s, there had not been a general war in Europe since the time of Napoleon. So like in the 1810s and the kind of competition between these European powers had just been slowly, slowly growing. And in fact, a lot of this intense mistrust and competition would lead to the First World War. But with the development of modern ideologies throughout the 19th century, uh, things like nationalism, nationalism was a huge one, where I always say the difference, you know, what's the difference between a patriot and a nationalist? And in my opinion, a patriot is someone who says, I love my country. That, you know, these are people that uh, really believe in their country and they love it. Now, nationalism is like this hyper form that takes that thought one step further, where it's, it's not just, I love my country, it's, I love my country and my country is better than every other country. And I will do what it takes to prove that to everybody. Like, you know, like <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a gross oversimplification. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me. But uh, I think that's just kind of a simple way to differentiate between those two terms, because I have heard that before people ask me kind of, well, aren't nationalists just patriots? And it's like, yeah, but they're like hyper patriots. Uh, so in any case, the scramble for Africa, the reason why that comes into it is because at this time period, having an overseas empire, having colonies and, and kind of dominions that stretched across the globe was seen as proof of your country's power, your country's achievement, your country's advancement, your country's superiority. It was definitely a prestige thing. Like prestige is the key word here. So that's I, that's the first kind of push uh, that I wanted to talk about. There were other incentives, uh, you know, economic, obviously, um, you know, they wanted these resources, but but we've already uh, talked about that. There, there was a, a still a religious kind of push. There were a lot of religious authorities in these countries that saw the Africans as kind of this underdeveloped kind of these childish peoples that were still, you know, bogged down in like the heathen beliefs and the, you know, the 
the superstitions, the, the pagan ways of the past, and they kind of wanted to Christianize them. So that's definitely part of it. Uh, so, you know, Protestant authorities in places like Britain and Germany, and then, you know, Catholic missionaries from places like France and Italy and Spain and Portugal, stuff like that. Um, so definitely, you know, a political push, uh, a religious uh, push. There was also a scientific push. Uh, now, this could be, you know, uh, science doesn't really have a morality by itself. Um, but there were people that were not interested in exploiting African people and resources. They were These were scientific explorers from Europe who were just generally interested in like, wow, look at all this new wildlife. Look at this unusual geology. Look at all these plants. So in things like, you know, zoology, geology, um, you know, botany, uh, entomology, like the study of insects. These were people that kind of believed in your in uh, African exploration for that purpose. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of bad things going on, but we are really expanding our scientific knowledge of the, you know, living and non-living things of this planet by exploring. Um, there were also keen archaeologists, historians. This was really big, especially in Egypt, where there was a, an entirely specialized field called Egyptology. But there were people exploring kind of all over. Now, the problem with this, well, other than them plundering all these treasures and taking them back to European uh, museums and displaying them, is that a lot of these European kind of archaeologists, historians, even when they found ruins in Africa of like, Oh, like these people built cities and they had trading networks. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they would just deny it and be like, oh, well, the Africans couldn't possibly have had this. They couldn't possibly have built this themselves. So this must have been some kind of lost tribe of Europeans or something like that. So anyway, that's that's interesting. Um, those are kind of the three main things I wanted to talk about is international competition, politics, uh, religion, science. Uh, stuff like that. Just definitely, you know, the need to, there was this constant kind of feeling from the Europeans of, well, if we don't grab all this stuff, somebody else will. Um, so that's kind of what I'm going to talk about now. The, the, the next thing I want to talk about is because of this intense uh, period of colonization in the you know, the final few decades of the 19th century, it meant that these African peoples <laughs> kind of whether they liked it or not got pulled into the subsequent world wars of the 20th century so world war one 1914 to 1918 and world war ii 1939 to 1945 there were a huge amount of africans that again whether they wanted to or not had to fight in these wars um you know you had uh, well for example you know in the british army like a regiment like the king's african rifles or you know, uh, Senegalese soldiers fighting for the French in World War One. There was a whole guerrilla campaign in East Africa in World War One. There was this German general, von Lettoff Vorbeck, and uh, yeah, he kept a lot of people busy. So that's kind of one of the lasting effects. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk about some of the other lasting effects of the scramble for Africa.
let's talk about some of the lasting effects of the scramble for Africa. Uh, one of them is a demographic shift in places like Britain and France, where so the scramble for Africa was the period before, generally speaking, before the dawn of the 20th century. And then you had these European empires that persisted through World War One and World War Two. Now, after World War Two ended in 1945, in uh, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, you had a worldwide phenomenon called decolonization, where the European powers kind of exhausted and ruined by war, uh, just didn't have the money anymore to kind of maintain these colonies. And at the same time, Africans who had fought, bled and died in these wars and who had become increasingly aware of kind of their status as independent peoples, they started pushing for independence. So that's what happened during these three decades is pretty much all of the European empires in Africa uh, just disintegrated and all of these places gained independence. And the result of that was a demographic shift in places like Britain and France, where you had a lot of uh, like black people uh, from these former colonies moving to the countries of their former masters. So today in France, for example, you can find, uh, especially in the big cities, like a lot of Senegalese people or uh, West Africans or in Britain, you know, you can find a lot of uh, Nigerians, for example, or South Africans. So that's kind of one of the results. Uh, another one is you had a lasting development of law and language. Uh, the scramble of Africa for Africa introduced a lot of these European languages. And to this day, these African countries obviously have their local native languages, but they will use uh, European languages to kind of communicate with the outside world. Uh, the United Nations has six official languages. And if I remember correctly, it's English, French, Spanish, Arabic, Mandarin, and Russian. So if you're an African country, you know, just for example, and you want to communicate with, you know, the United Nations, it's kind of like, well, we have to pick one of those languages. Uh, it also introduced like a lingua franca, like a common language for them to even communicate uh, like with each other. Now, I'm not saying necessarily this is a good or bad thing. I'm just saying like this is one of the lasting effects. It, it's kind of like the developments in infrastructure. Like on the pro side, you could say, oh, well, Europeans, you know, when they went to these countries, they built harbors, they built ports, roads, bridges, uh, railroads, airfields, stuff like that. Like they really developed the infrastructure so that when they left, these European countries had been pulled into the 20th century by the, you know, developments of these Europeans. Now, <laughs> the counter argument to that is like, well, the Europeans weren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They only developed the transport networks, the infrastructure networks to better, more efficiently extract resources from that country. You know, so if you have like a diamond mine in South Africa, yeah, of course, you're going to build a railroad from the diamond mine to the port to export the diamonds. Um, so it's kind of like, oh, well, it, you know, it's really up to you to decide um, kind of like, was this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, they introduced legal systems. So in the French colonies, the Napoleonic Code, in the British colonies, uh, what's called British common law. Uh, which is pretty much the legal foundation for all English-speaking countries uh, around the world, you know, especially in the Commonwealth. Another thing, uh, another kind of lasting um, effect of this uh, scramble for Africa is kind of these, uh, how can I put it, like ethnic divisions. 
Um, Africa obviously has a ton of different people from different ethnic uh, backgrounds, different traditions. They come from different like land uh, forms, like traditionally. So their traditional homeland, like they might be a hill people or a forest people or a plains people or something like that. Now the Europeans through the process of the scramble for Africa and like the subsequent like demarcation of these countries after World War One and World War Two, is... <sighs> Sometimes they would artificially create ethnic groups or split ethnic groups apart or just kind of mess with the, the general ethnic and geographical makeup of a country. Uh, one of the reasons why they did this is that classic tactic called divide and conquer, where it's like, let's say you're the British, you're in this country. Uh, hmm. Well, if we're all rich and powerful and they're all poor, they might rise against us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take 10% of their people, give them perks, give them privileges, elevate them above the other people, get them to rule the country for us. And by doing that, we're creating a class of people that's kind of a buffer zone between us and the people we're ruling. So that if the people at the bottom ever get furious and start cutting off heads, they're going to go after the other Africans who are elevated above them rather than come directly for us. So, you know, by doing this and, and European powers did this everywhere. I mean, one of the most tragic, sad, brutal, most lasting effects of this is you can see this in the Congo uh, with the Hutu, Tutsi and Twa peoples. Now, those ethnic divisions, I've heard a lot of uh, historians say that, you know, well, the Twa, I mean, they're like a forest people, but the Hutus and Tutsis, uh, there has been a lot of modern speculation that these were in fact kind of the same people. And the Belgians created distinguish, uh, distinguishing features between them to kind of separate them and get them to fight each other rather than to fight them directly, the Belgians. So anyway, this is kind of my long way of trying to illustrate the point that there were kind of good lasting effects of the scramble for Africa, uh, you know, maybe not a lot of them. And there were a lot of really bad ones too. Like, and one of them is all of this European, you know, interference, meddling, and just messing around in Africa for decades, uh, pretty much laid the foundation for a lot of modern African conflicts, whether these are social, uh, political, uh, religious, ethnic, uh, just all of a lot of these conflicts if you really dig you can kind of trace them back to the actions of these uh, europeans um i think when the europeans were doing it there were maybe you know a few of them that were like mm, i don't think we should be doing this or or i think we should be thinking this through a little bit more but the scramble for africa is called that the scramble for africa because it really was a scramble there weren't a whole lot of people thinking about like well what effect is this going to have on the people like there were humanitarians and stuff that did think that but a lot of people were like well either who cares like we have to beat the french like if you're the british or something um and there was just kind of this general uh idea of like well you know they're uh, I mean, it might be a little cold and heartless, but maybe some of these Europeans thought like, well, who cares? Like they're just Africans, you know, and that kind of callous uh, racism, uh, that kind of idea of black inferiority is very much exemplified in, I think, one of the most tragic um, kind of spectacles of the scramble for Africa that I wanted to mention earlier, but I I'm going to bring it up now, is that when this was happening, 
There were like zoos in European cities, uh, places like Paris and London, where they would literally take Africans from Africa and set them up in like these human zoos in places like Paris and London, uh, in like a habitat that these like scientists would build for them. And they would just live there and people would pay to come and see like these Africans uh, in, in quote, their, their native habitat. Like it, it really was like going to the zoo, like they were really treating them like animals. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, slavery wasn't a thing anymore. So it's like, well, we don't, you know, technically own these people, um, but there's still that mentality of kind of, well, they're not really people, you know, either they're beasts or they're kind of this intermediate stage between man and beast and, and stuff like that. Now, again, you know, not all Europeans thought that way, um, but it was just this like horrifying period of, exploitation and uh racism and just um i even mentioned it in the intro like this is really i think one of the darkest periods of african history and definitely has ramifications reverberations a rippling through time and history that still really affects that continent and the world today so that's kind of all i wanted to say about that All right, well, that's going to do it for us here today. I believe this is the last episode of season one. I had to actually look up, you know, on Google how long a season of TV is. And I think it's like 22, 23 episodes. But I'm like, ah, that's a weird number. So I decided for the purposes of this podcast, each season will be 20 episodes. So there's a lot of topics I'd like to look into for season two. So I hope very much that you've enjoyed season one uh, as much as i've enjoyed making it and yeah tell your friends uh leave a review on apple itunes or anything like that and uh, definitely i will put as much effort into season two as i put into season one now as for the actual scramble for africa this was a very interesting topic for me to research i really do think it's one of the kind of darkest most uh tragic chapters in the history of a continent. Now, while this was going on, there was European imperialism. Uh, Sometimes you'll see those words kind of used interchangeably, like colonization and imperialism. Uh, This was also going on in other parts of the world, like in India and Southeast Asia and the Pacific Ocean. Um, You know, and, you know, keep in mind, this was a time when the European powers you know, the European continent in general, in the context of the entire geopolitical kind of balance of the world, they were really at the peak of their strength at this point. Like this was before two world wars had really battered and destroyed Europe. Um, So it was just like this period of unrestrained exploration, exploitation, greed, um, just the Pulp Fiction, the popular media of the time had a particular uh, fixation, this fascination with like the mysteries of darkest Africa. Because when this was happening, you know, the depths of Africa were one of the last remaining places in the world that was uh, unexplored. So definitely kind of, it was, it was for a lot of wealthy kind of gentlemen Europeans, it was, you know, they didn't really look at a lot of the dark, tragic ramifications of what they were doing. It was like, oh, it's an adventure. And it was a way to bring pride and glory to your country. But anyway, that's going to do it for us uh, here today. 
Uh, I'd like to thank you so, so much for listening. And this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite sized history podcast at gmail.com. And tell your friends. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>